0: Hey, let's give a hand for reading all those names, right? Well done. I told Josh, I said, hey, you better practice this because if you just wing it, it, it's going to be trouble. There's a lot of names here. And uh, yeah, he did, he did great. So uh, good morning. It's great to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and delighted to be able to open up God's Word with you. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to make an announcement. We're making this announcement across all our Redemption congregations today about the next uh, Redemption congregation that we're planning to plant. And uh, if you are from the West Side or have friends or family on the West Side, uh, this will hopefully encourage and excite you. Uh, February 8th, we're going to launch Redemption Peoria. Redemption Peoria, February 8th. Yeah. And, uh... Currently, the plan is for them to meet at the Peoria Center for Performing Arts, and uh, Sean Myers is going to be the church planter for that. He's been a pastoral resident with us for a number of years. Uh, Some of you may remember him. He preached here once super high energy. Uh, If you heard his story, you know he spent some time in the foster care system, and God has really uh, just redeemed his life in a powerful way. And uh, he's going to be leading a core of probably 50 or 60 folks, mostly from Redemption Arcadia, who currently live on the west side and are going to be planting over there and uh, we anticipate that that could really uh, launch with some significant strength. So please be praying for them. That's the Sunday after the Super Bowl and uh, we'll keep you posted on more information as it comes. But, but for now, just want to rejoice and, and uh, pray about what God is doing for that. So um, that's, that's that announcement. We're going to dig into this passage now and we're winding down our series in the book of Romans that we've been at it almost a couple years. And as I think back a few years ago, right as we were starting, starting, uh, a lot of people would say to me, oh, I'm so excited to to have us go through Romans. I love Romans. And I'd say, oh yeah, well, what are your favorite parts of Romans? And nobody mentioned this passage. (laughs) This was never, ever part of what people were thinking. They were thinking of Romans 8 and of Romans 3 and of Romans 12. Nobody thought that this passage was the reason they were excited to study Romans. And yet I think there's some things in here that we'll see that might not be uh, as obvious, but as we unpack it, I think there's actually a possibility that this could really be kind of, uh, kind of inspiring, hopefully, to you. Um, you know, when I think about inspiration and, and things that are inspiring, I can't help but think of those kind of motivational posters, you know, that sometimes you, you see uh, hanging on walls. And, and my favorite motivational posters uh, are at despair.com which um, actually they're called Demotivators. It's a whole brand, um, and it it just totally fits my sense of humor. And uh, one of my favorite uh, Demotivators uh, posters is the one on individuality. Individuality. Here's a a look at it. There's a bunch of snowflakes, and it says, Individuality, always remember that you are unique, just like everybody else. (laughs) I I love that because it just sort of speaks to how how kind of ordinary we are. Ordinary we are. We're not all that special. Uh, you know. When I was thinking about that, it made me think of this uh, this uh, video I had seen on YouTube of David McCullough Jr. He's an English teacher of a high school. In, uh, in Massachusetts and he gave a commencement speech at the graduation a number of years ago like 2012 and it was incredibly popular it was this little video wasn't shot in super high quality but he's giving this speech and uh, if you go watch it now you can you can look it up it's it's been watched on YouTube over 2.4 million times and he's actually sort of taken the core idea of that commencement speech and, and turned it into a book and I want to share with you a little bit uh, uh, from that speech. It's, it's a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's, it's helpful, and it sort of is right in line with that, uh, that individuality poster. Here, here's, what, here's what David McCullough Jr. Uh, says. He says, Commencement is life's great ceremonial beginning with its own attendant and highly appropriate symbolism. And your ceremonial costume, shapeless, uniform, one-size-fits-all, Whether male or female, tall or short, scholar or slacker, spray tan prom queen or intergalactic Xbox assassin, each of you is dressed, you'll notice, exactly the same. And your diploma, but for your name, exactly the same. All of this is as it should be because none of you is special. You are not special. You are not exceptional. Contrary to what your U9 soccer trophy suggests your glowing 7th grade report card, despite every assurance of a certain corpulent purple dinosaur, that nice Mr. Rogers and your batty Aunt Sylvia, no matter how often your maternal caped crusader has swooped in to save you, you're nothing special. Yes, you've been pampered, cosseted, doted upon, helmeted, bubble-wrapped. Yes, capable adults with other things to do have held you, kissed you, fed you, wiped your mouth, wiped your bottom, trained you, taught you, tutored you, coached you, listened to you, counseled you, encouraged you, consoled you, and encouraged you again. You've been nudged, cajoled, wheedled, and implored. You've been feeded and fawned over and called sweetie pie. Yes, you have. But do not get the idea you're anything special because you're not. The empirical evidence is everywhere. Across the country, no fewer than 3.2 million seniors are graduating about now from more than 37,000 high schools. That's 37,000 valedictorians, 37,000 class presidents, 92,000 harmonizing altos, and 340,000 swaggering jocks. But why limit ourselves to high school? After all, you're leaving it. So think about this. Even if you're one in a million on a planet of 6.8 billion, that means there are nearly 7,000 people just like you. And consider for a moment the bigger picture, your planet, I'll remind you, is not the center of its solar system, your solar system is not the center of its galaxy, your galaxy is not the center of the universe. In fact, astrophysicists assure us the universe has no center, therefore you cannot be it. <laughs> Isn't that great? So the, so the book he wrote is called You Are Not Special and Other Encouragements. And uh, I just thought that was so funny. I mean, this, this doesn't feel like a Joel Osteen sermon at this point, right? <laughs> and here, here's the truth. We're not special. We are, by definition, average. We're ordinary. But here's what's amazing about the Christian faith. The Christian faith has spread and works in extraordinary ways, but always through ordinary people. That's one of the things I love about this passage. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about his travel plans and his desire to spread the gospel places and take a collection uh, for poor people and ask people to pray for him, and he lists off a bunch of names of people that he cares about, and all of that is just ordinary stuff that was in the process of changing the world. We are ordinary. Now, I don't think ordinary necessarily means mediocre, but we're average. We're ordinary, and that is okay because uh, here's kind of a big idea. This is something we talk about with our, with our leaders and pastors is that the normal life is naturally supernatural. The normal Christian life is naturally supernatural, Think about it. If you're a Christian, this means you've been made by God, and you've not only been made by God, but you're being remade by God. You're a new creation in Christ because Jesus Christ, God's Son, has come into the world. He has lived in all the temptation that you face, but he's done it victoriously where we've done it in failing. He's punished on the cross for sins he doesn't commit. There's our sins. And he rises again victoriously. And if we trust in him, we are united to him by faith, we've seen in the book of Romans. Not only are we united to Christ by faith so that God sees us the way he sees his son, but we are then filled with the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, God himself, comes and in, in, in lives in us. That is supernatural. That is powerful. That is powerful. That is world-changing, and yet it happens in ordinary us. Think about it. Think about the context in which people's lives are changed. It's very, very ordinary. We wake up. We brush our teeth. We go to the bathroom. We eat. We figure out something to wear. We drive to work. Oftentimes, work can feel very routine, very mundane, and very, I guess I'm doing this again. We drive home, we're with people that we see all the time, and it's just, it's just the same thing over and over. And we eat, and we drink, we go back to bed. It's ordinary, and yet it's in that context that children form their deepest values. It's in that context that relationships are formed so that when life hurts, you go to someone and you have someone that has some real answers about how Christ can intervene. It's in that context that God changes and grows us. See, the, the normal Christian life is naturally supernatural. This ordinary thing has the power through all of its ordinariness to result in something extraordinary. So as Paul's sort of wrapping up this letter, as he sort of has all these things that aren't everybody's favorite thing to study, just kind of these ordinary discussions about here's my plans and here's what I'm doing, I think there are some powerful lessons to see about what is involved in just the ordinary Christian life. You kind of see Paul here, you know, hanging out on Sunday afternoon in his, you know, workout shorts. And he's just kind of talking about, here's what's going on. And in the midst of that, I think we get a chance to really see uh, what's involved in the ordinary Christian life and how could that actually uh, change things in powerful ways. So we're going to see a few different things, three different things that the normal Christian life involves. And the first one that we're going to see is that the normal Christian life involves generous giving. The normal Christian life involves generous giving. In the passage just before this, Paul has talked about how God's love is not just for the Jewish people, but it's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for the whole world. And how his specific calling is to take the good news about Jesus uh, to the places where people have not heard it. He says, I don't, I don't want to go where Christ has already been named. I want to go in a place where no one's heard of him. I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. I want to take it to the ends of the earth. And actually, in this passage, he's going to tell us that his desire is to take that gospel to Spain. Uh, at the time that he's writing this, he's in Corinth, which is modern-day Greece. If you're not familiar with that part of the world, maybe look at the map in the back of your Bible. Uh, you can kind of see that you know uh, Israel is sort of down here. You have the Mediterranean uh, Sea here. Uh, Corinth is in, in Greece. Rome is over here. Spain is obviously further west from there. And and Paul's writing to the Romans from Corinth. He's never been to Rome. He hopes to get to Rome someday as he goes on his way to Spain. And he describes sort of what he has in mind, his, his plans to get to Spain. Here's what he says. Verse 22, this is the reason I've so often been hindered from coming to you, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped there on my journey by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul says, listen, I have these intentions to get to Spain, to preach Christ where he hasn't been named, but I'm going to stop on the way and, and, uh, and hopefully be encouraged by you and see you and actually get to meet you face to face, and that will be a wonderful thing. And, and so, so he, then he does something, he, he describes the rest of his plan, which seems pretty surprising. Because you're going, okay, if Paul, your goal, your mission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth... But he, he tells us he has a big detour in mind before he does it. Look at what he says in verse 20, 25. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. So get this. You can kind of picture my, my best attempt at a map here, all right? Israel, Jerusalem's down here. Corinth is over here. Rome is over here. I plan to go to Spain and stop by on my way there, but presently I have to go to Jerusalem to drop off an offering that's been made for the Christians in Jerusalem. That's an 800-mile journey from Corinth to Jerusalem that he's going to make. He says, verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. The people in Corinth, the people in Greece, have made an offering. We don't know how much, we don't know how substantial, we don't know how many people gave to it, but they knew that the church in Jerusalem, which was severely persecuted and very poor, because as people became Christians, their families often abandoned them. It was hard to have any economic stability because people disowned them. So, so the, the Greek Christians take up a contribution, they take up an offering, and Paul, whose goal in life is to take the gospel where it hasn't been named, says, time out, before I go to Spain, which is my main desire, I'm going to take an 800-mile detour, because I've got to give this money for the poor. Now, isn't there a part of you as you sort of hear that where you go, Paul, what are you doing, man? Like, this, this is not that strategic. Like, anybody could take that offering to Jerusalem, but, like, you're the church planter. You're the missionary. You're the dude. Like, get to Spain, man. Forget this trip. Because he's going to go 800 miles to Jerusalem. Then he's going to go 1,500 miles back to Rome. And then another 800 miles, uh, seven 800 miles to Spain. This is a 3,000-mile journey that Paul is talking about taking in terms of this detour. Why is he willing to do that? Here's why. Because the normal Christian life involves generosity, especially to the poor and vulnerable. Paul didn't see it as, well, here's the big mission, and here's this thing I guess I gotta do. He said, no, part of God's mission, part of the normal Christian life is ordinary Christians being generous, especially to those in need. Here's what he says in verse 27 about the people in Corinth who gave. He says, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. You know what Paul's logic is here? He says, listen, the normal part of the Christian life is being generous with your material goods. Because if we share together in spiritual blessing, then we share together in material blessing. So this is normal. The normal, ordinary Christian life is for Christians to to look at the needs of others around and go, how can I help? How can I bless? How can I be open-handed? How can I be kind? How can I be generous? Rather than how can I hoard? How much can I keep? How can I right? That's not normal Christianity. That's selfish, sinful versions of Christianity. But the normal Christian life is 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 just this expected generosity. You see it as well uh, down in chapter 16, 1 and 2. Uh, Paul commends Phoebe. Phoebe is a, a leader uh, of, of one of the churches that's near Corinth. She's a, a key prominent person. Uh, there's a very good chance the church has met uh, in her home. Um, she's probably very wealthy and has resources, and she doesn't see those resources as being something that she's to keep for herself, but that she's to be generous with. Look at what it says in verse 2. He says, welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in what Whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. A patron there means sort of like a benevolent host. Phoebe, who has resources, has said, these resources aren't for me. I'm going to have people in my home. I'm going to support people who are in need. And, and, And Paul says, not just me, many people and me. This is the normal Christian life. And so here's, here's my question for you. Who in your life is counting on you to be a patron in their life? To be generous to them? Who's, who's counting on you for that? Because a normal part of the Christian life is that we would be people who are, are so connected to one another as the body of Christ, the family of God, that we would see the needs that exist and we would work to meet those. I know that can be tricky, I know that can be challenging, but that's, that's what Paul's saying here. This is just the normal Christian life. Of course I'm going to deviate from this world mission tour because the normal thing to do is to take care of people. Of course that's normal. I think about, there's a, a few people in our lives, uh, for, for my family, that have just been fantastic. I, I would have never used this word before, but patrons to us. You know, they just sort of watch us. And when there's times where they kind of sense it, they'll go, you know what? Could we babysit for you? It seems like you guys might benefit from a date night. Or one time, some friends came over with this just big old box of everything we love from Costco. So we just want to be a blessing to you. I'd ask, do you have someone like that? But I think the better question is, are you being someone like that? That's the normal Christian life. And I think it's especially needed in, in this part of the city and in this state and in Arizona. I think it's incredibly important because not everybody's from here. Not everybody has family, right? Family becomes kind of this built-in patron, and yet there's so many people that are not from here. They moved. Or, or even if they're, they're from here, they grew up on another side of the valley. They don't see family. They don't have that sort of security system. And we can be that for each other. And the normal Christian life is this life of generous giving, of seeing things. I, they're not mine. I don't exist to take. I exist to give. Why is that normal? It's normal because that's what Jesus did. That's who Jesus is, right? If we are Christians, we're little Christians little Christ, trying to follow after him, right, the nature even of the gospel, the most famous verse in the Bible is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the nature of, of Jesus, the nature of Christianity is, is to give. This is why I'm so encouraged, just between services, uh, they're, they're hauling in all these toys that you all brought Uh, for M25. We're taking this uh, special, we we take a collection of food every month, uh, but especially this month we collected toys that are going to be used at the House of Refuge event of this partnership we do, and to see how many toys are coming in there and how they're good toys, right? I mean, these are not like leftover things. Like, you guys have been generous, and I see that, and I applaud it, and I rejoice in it, and I go, yes, that's normal. That's good. That's right. That's what the Christian life should be. There's another thing uh, that, that we kind of pull out of here that's sort of a normal part of Christian life uh, is, is planning and praying. That's the second thing. The normal Christian life involves planning and praying. This whole section is really Paul describing his plan, right? I, I, I'm going I'm to go to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to stop by and see you, and then I'm going to go to Spain. And this is sort of uh, everything that I intend to do. He says in verse uh, 28, Uh, When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what's been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know, hear the certainty there. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Right, Paul makes this plan. And, And and we sometimes have to ask, is it okay to plan? Because there's passages, especially like in the book of James, that says, hey, don't boast about tomorrow. Don't say, hey, tomorrow I'm going to do this, and next month I'm going to do that. But say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this. Here we see Paul making a plan, and yet Paul's confident that no matter how the plan sort of shakes out, in the end he's going to come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Planning's not a bad thing as long as you understand that it's in the hands of the Lord, and Paul understood that. We see that from uh, the book of Proverbs, which uh, Paul would have been very familiar with. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It's fine to make plans. There's nothing wrong with that. It's normal. But, But in our planning, it's to remember God's in charge of this deal. I'm not king. I'm not sovereign. I don't run the world. I don't even run my own life. God does. And so, therefore, the normal part of the Christian life is is planning, but then it's also involved praying. And that's the next thing that Paul does. Paul says, get the earnestness of verse 30, how seriously he's asking for prayer. Look at this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, I'm pleading, I'm begging with you, he says, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. He says, listen, I've got these plans, I've got these desires, but I need your help. I need your prayers. I need you. And the word there, it's so interesting, strive, has it with the idea of this sort of earnest effort being poured out, that it's not going to be easy, that I want you to pray for me, strive together with me in praying. Pray for me. That should be a normal part of our Christian life, that we are regularly saying, hey, you know, maybe it's in a text, maybe it's calling somebody, maybe it's just seeing somebody and going, "Hey, would you pray for me about this?" I've been convicted a few times where someone's going, "Hey, how can I pray for you?" and I go, "I don't know." That's a really pathetic way to live. If you don't know how you right, if you're not so aware of your dependence on God and your need for His direction that you instantly know, here's how you can pray for me, then 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 maybe you need to spend some time thinking about that. And, and we, what a blessing. I mean, every week I'll get texts and I'll send texts to people who go, hey, pray for me about this. I need your help with that. And this is normal part of the Christian life. And so uh, Paul specifically prays for a few different things here. Uh, he says in verse 31, pray that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. He knows when he gets to Jerusalem, people are going to be very against him. They're going to oppose his message. They're going to oppose the love that he's had for the rest of the world. He says, also, pray that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. That's the offering he's taking. Pray that it would be a blessing. Verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's interesting, these prayer requests that Paul has. He says, pray that I'd be delivered, pray that the the offering would go well, and pray that I'd just be refreshed when I get to see you. And so the question is, how did Paul's plan, mixed with the prayers of these people, how did it turn out? What's interesting, we actually get to read in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts tells us about what happened. It tells us about Paul's journeys. It tells us about these things. What it tells us is that when Paul got to Jerusalem, sure enough, the unbelievers in Judea, those religious, zealous uh, Jewish Pharisees, opposed him. They came up with a plan to kill him that fortunately was subverted because one of Paul's relatives overheard about it and he was able to escape. But because of all of that kind of chaos and disruption, he'd been arrested by the Roman government. And so sure enough, when he gets to Rome a number of years later, he gets there and he gets to see these people, but instead of getting, to see, getting there kind of on his own journey or on his own ship that he kind of links up with, he goes as a Roman prisoner. And when he gets to Rome, he gets there under house arrest. Now get this, this isn't like, you know, deep in the bowels of prison. You know, there were other moments when Paul was there. But in this particular case, he's under house arrest. He he was probably under house arrest in Rome for a number of years. And people were allowed to visit him. And Mark and Tychicus and Luke and a number of other companions were with him. And he was able to do a lot of ministry there. But he arrived not with the kind of freedom that he probably imagined. Not with the, not the way things he, they didn't go the way he thought. And yet, what he said in verse 29 was right. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So here's my question for us in our normal, ordinary Christian life that's filled with planning and filled with praying. What if God's path for you is different than your plan? Paul got to Rome, but in the middle was being arrested, being beaten, being shipwrecked, a whole host of things that were not part of how he planned it. What if your life is the same way? You had these career plans, and God's heading you in a different direction. You had these plans and expectations for a family, and God's taking you a different place. You get a diagnosis, or something happens with your health, and it just entirely changes all the plans you had. All right, here's what I want to encourage you with that happened to Paul, and that happens to us, and it's normal. And yet, if we will sort of. Uh, allow our prayers to trump our plans, then we will be able to say with Paul, no matter what, I know that I'll experience the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Why was Paul able to say that? The reason he was able to say that was because of what he already said back in chapter 8, when he said that he knew That for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God works everything together for good. Paul was able to say, I know it will work out with the fullness of joy in Christ. Because he knew that if God is for me, who can be against me? How could Paul be so sure of those things? Because Jesus himself endured things going not exactly the way he wanted. And and Paul knew that if Jesus experienced that and still allows it to happen to him, he must have good reasons for it, right? Even Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he is killed, says, this is not what I want. Father, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to suffer like this. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. And if Jesus died and rose again and is for us, then no matter how the plans differ from our plan, we can say with Paul, I have the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That's the normal Christian life. Here's the last thing, and this is where we kind of get into all the names of chapter 16. The last component of the the normal Christian life is that we would delight in diversity that we would delight in things being different and in people being different and that we would uh, welcome and learn from and embrace people that are not exactly like us. It's amazing. Uh, Paul lists uh, 26 different names here in this chapter. A lot of commentators are going, how did he know all these people? <laughs> this is amazing. You've never even been to Rome. Uh, some of it may be just people traveled quite a bit through the uh, through the Roman Empire and, and other people or perhaps folks he's heard of or friends of friends. We, we don't know exactly, but it's amazing the diversity that shows up in this list. Uh, we know of a number of Jews that show up in this list because a few times, verse 7 and verse 11, uh, Paul talks about my kinsmen and Dranicus and Junia, my kinsman Herodian, those sorts of things. So he's talking about Jews. We also know from a bunch of these names that this list is filled with Gentiles, filled with non-Jews. We know that this uh, list has a number of people who are slaves, Ampliatus in uh, verse 8, Urbanus in verse 9, Hermes, Philologus, Julia verses 14 and 15. Those are all common names of slaves. We have inscriptions and we have documents of common slave names, and those were common slave names. So in this church are Jews, Gentiles, slaves, also powerful people. Arist- Aristobulus, in verse 10, it says uh, um, verse 10, "Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus." Aristobulus, uh, historians tell us, was the historian of Herod the, er, no, was the grandson of, of Herod the Great. So grandson of an emperor. Narcissus, in verse 11, was a close friend of the Emperor Claudius. Paul's greeting them. So here's what's amazing. Paul, even in his greeting, shows us that the gospel has the power to go up to the powerful and down to the powerless. Here's a church with Jews, Gentiles, slaves, powerful. We also see that there's not just sort of Jew and Gentile diversity, there's multi-continent diversity, right? Right? Uh, Rufus is mentioned. Uh, Rufus is almost certainly um, the son of Simon uh, of Cyrene, who's mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. Simon of Cyrene is the one who's asked to carry the cross for Jesus. And Mark there notes uh, Simon of Cyrene, Rufus's father. Mark probably writes that because he's writing to a Roman audience and knows that the people in Rome will know who Rufus is. They know that he can go, they can go to Rufus and go, hey, Rufus, did this really happen? He's going, yeah, this really happened. That's my dad. Right? And so that's probably who this is. So Rufus is an African from North Africa. We see a diversity of age and experience. In verse 5, Epinitus is uh, the, the first convert in Asia. We see a number of other places where uh, Paul says that they were in Christ before me. He, he wants to greet Rufus' mother, who has been a mother to me, right? So there's, there's age and experience diversity. I love even just in our church how that is. I love how, you know, Josh, our student pastor, can stand here with Bob and say, this is my hiking buddy, and we spend time together, and there's blessing from that. And then the most profound thing that all the commentators note is the number of women that are given prominent uh, status here in this particular description. It's incredible. Nine of the 26 uh, people mentioned here are women. As I said earlier, Phoebe uh, likely carried this letter for Paul. She had the letter, the original letter of the Romans was in her hands as she carried it there. Paul entrusted that uh, to Phoebe. We also see uh, Prisca and Aquila. They're mentioned in verse 3. Prisca, or or some translations say Priscilla. It's just interesting there that Paul mentions her first. Priscilla and Aquila, not Aquila and Priscilla. And and it's just consistent with one of the things you see. This is something that just so bothers me about critics of Christianity. Is they'll often say, oh, Christianity is just all about putting down women. The reality is everywhere that Christianity went, Women whose testimony was not even considered valid in court during this time were elevated. Phoebe, carry this letter. It's Priscilla and Aquila, not Aquila and Priscilla. There's this incredible uh, elevating of the status of women because women are made in the image of God just like men. So you see the diversity of this church? Jew, Gentile, African, powerful, powerless, man, woman. That's to be normal, and so that's one of the things I just love and would, would try to encourage us, even in our church, is to pursue that and to lean into that. Right? Whether it's ethnic diversity or age or stage of life diversity. Right? Sometimes people will come and they'll go, um, "I'm looking for a small group of people, and it needs to be on Tuesday nights, starting no later than or no earlier than seven thirty, and it needs to be um, with other people who have four kids and like bowling." Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But it's like, okay, A, we don't have that. That's a little picky. And uh, B, that's not really all that good for you. Now, we're not trying to make everyone as uncomfortable as possible all the time. Okay, that's not our main goal. But the reality is it's good for married people to spend some time with single people. It's good for single people to spend some time with married people. And it's good for divorced people to spend time with people who are widowed, Or who are married and it's good for people who are older to spend time with people who are younger and vice versa i love that that happens in our church you know one of the things that that everyone is surprised at when i tell them because we have so many kids here every week you know i mean it's just in in about 20 minutes this place will just be littered with children everywhere and and one of the things that shocks people is about half of our church does not have children under 18 in the home do you know that so what that means is the people with kids just have a lot, <laughs> right? But sometimes people will come, and they're older, or they're single, or they're whatever, and they feel like outsiders. They feel like, they don't, listen, we need the whole picture. Because this whole picture, this whole diverse, beautiful picture is part of what Jesus died for. Jesus died for men and women. He died for the powerful. He died for the powerless. He died for every tribe and tongue and nation. I love this This picture of the christian life that we just see in this ordinary thing. Part of what i love about it is how how countercultural it is. Think about this. This is just ordinary stuff. Be generous with your resources. Make plans but pray and trust god more than your plans. Value people that are different you. That, that that's not It doesn't seem that crazy or extraordinary, and yet that's so different than the world. The world says, accumulate all you can, keep all you can, live for yourself. The world says, make plans, and what you say goes, and if it doesn't go, complain about it. The world says, yeah, let's sort of give lip service to diversity, but really, let's just surround ourselves with people that think and act and live just like us yet the normal Christian life subverts that. And through it, through that ordinary daily stuff of generosity and faith and love, we change the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you teach and instruct us, even in these passages that seem obscure and that seem easy to sort of pass over. Help us to learn from them. Help us to grow as ordinary people Uh, used in extraordinary ways by your powerful spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.